You are listening to Commodity Talks, the show brought to you by Marco Terla in partnership with the Shipping and Commodity Academy, the only place to learn how to move commodities around the world and ace any commodity training interview. Go check shippingandcommodityacademy.com and subscribe to the newsletter to get ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Commodity Talks. Uh, today is a great day, is a great day uh, for me and for all of us because uh, an icon of the commodity trading industry joined us and uh, he's the writer of uh, Commodity Conversation, of uh, the Sugar Casino and uh, Out of the Shadows, the new merchants of grain and uh, he's here to talk to us about his latest publication, Crop to Cup, Coffee Conversations. This is a very interesting book where uh, he um, tells the story of coffee starting from uh, the history and historical background up to talking about the different procedures and the players, millers, roasters. And uh, so let's jump into it. If you don't know by now, I'm talking about Jonathan Kisman. So hi, Jonathan, and welcome to Commodity Talks. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, I must admit that uh, I'm a very uh, big fan of you. When I became serious about uh, commodity trading, the first thing that I, that I did was to buy commodity conversation. And from there, I, it taught me the dynamics behind the industry, the people that live in the industry. And uh, I, in all honesty, it also had a, a significant influence on my decision to start this podcast, Commodity Talks. So having you today here, it's really a pleasure for me. But uh, let's talk about your latest book. Now, in, uh, at the initial, in the, during the initial pages, you talk about the, the travels and the countries you've been to write this, uh, this uh, book. You talk about Guatemala, Colombia, Brazil, Ethiopia, among others. So could you tell us about maybe your writing process and uh, what did you do in those countries? How long did you stay there? Well, I let you into a secret. I wrote the book entirely during one year and I was locked down for the whole year. So I never went to visit any of these countries um, to, uh, okay, to, okay. to try their coffee or to talk to people. But one of the biggest advantages, Marco, was that because nobody could travel during this one-year period, I had yeah. access to everybody. Quite often it's difficult tracking people down, but all the top traders, all the top people in the industry were all free and very helpful um, during the talk. And I was also very lucky because there's a, a lady that is a big, big star in the coffee industry, um, and she has started her own roaster not very far from where we live. So she's been supplying me uh, with lots of different types of coffee. So I've been on a world tour of coffee, coffee from Papua New Guinea to Indonesia to India to Central America, Africa. And so I've been really lucky to have this lockdown period and be able to travel wide, widely through coffee. So I've loved writing the book and I've loved doing the traveling, at least in my head. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a very nice story also to hear that even in lockdown, there's always a way, a different way, but to travel, to experience something new. And uh, how, did you, how did you learn about, uh, how, about coffee, about uh, the differences within coffees, about how to cup a coffee? How was, this, uh, how was the process in learning for you? Well, I was very lucky because I wrote the book with the support of the Swiss Coffee Traders Association, uh, about 60% of all coffee in the world is traded through Switzerland. And uh, the very big companies, the traders and the roasters, all seem to have offices in the town where I live, which is in Lausanne. 
And because I had the support of the Swiss Copy Traders Association, they gave me lots of introductions and everybody I talked to was very helpful and all wanted to share their experience and their knowledge. So I learned a huge amount uh, just talking with them. Um, I published some of the interviews in the book, um, but there were quite a few others that I didn't publish. Uh, people were not sure that they wanted to be named um, yep. or uh, they hadn't got the authority for their companies, etc. But uh, everyone was extremely helpful. And so they shared with me all of their coffee experience. And I, I really particularly liked it because it's a very nice industry. Uh, the people are very nice. Different commodities have different feels to them. Grain is very businesslike and serious. And coffee is full of romantics who love the taste of coffee and who adore their commodity. And so I hope some of that love for the coffee came across, comes across in the book. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Because uh, so I have to say that I like coffee, but I, I'm probably an average, uh, an average user. So I'm Italian myself, as you might have guessed. And uh, I like espresso. I like to have my coffee as an, as an espresso. But reading your book, it, it really made me want to, to learn more about the different origins, the, the subtle differences between each of the different coffees. So I was the other day just looking at different courses available either online or in person. I saw one in Florence that teaches how to cup. So it really helped me discover this world where, uh, for example, myself, I consume coffee every day, but uh, I wouldn't be able to spot um, small differences. And uh, your book made me want so, to do this. And uh, in, in this regard, there's an interesting interview that uh, you had on the book with Andrea Illi. And uh, he compares coffee to wine. And uh, his aim is to have... Um, coffee reach the status that uh, wine has and uh, one question came natural to me and uh, like how do you see come mm, this vision Andrea is in this vision become reality when uh, a lot of people are like me they're maybe average users of coffee they they cannot quite quite catch the differences between one coffee or another like how is coffee consumption going to be in the long term well, it's very much like wine, Marco, because when you first, when I first started drinking wine when I was younger, you tend to not know what you're drinking and you just buy any old thing. And But as you get a little bit older and you taste different wines, you begin to learn what you like and you learn about the different districts and the different areas and the different origins. And so I think as a first step, um, it's very useful to um, not to buy a blend to start with, but to buy... Uh, a specific origin, um, a Guatemalan or a, a whatever, an Arabica from Ethiopia, and you will start to tell the differences, to taste the differences between the different types, between Ethiopia, Kenyan, um, uh, Rwanda, Uganda, for example. And also there was an interview with uh, Shirin Moyad, who has the roastery I mentioned earlier, and she spent a lot of time in Papua New Guinea. And so... Uh, her love is the, the coffee from Papua New Guinea, which is very earthy flavour. It's a very you can okay. you can taste the terroir. So there's most of the coffee grown in the world is what we call commodity coffee. It's about ninety to ninety five percent. But there is a growing market for speciality coffee, where people are willing to pay more for very high quality coffee, and which is the equivalent of fine wine. And so 
and any learning curve, I would suggest starting off tasting the different origins. And then as you get more experienced, you can start mixing some of the beans, for example, to add a little bit of Robusta to a, to a Tanzanian Robusta, for example, to a, an Ethiopian uh, Ara Arabica. Uh, and you mentioned Andrea Illy, uh, who's uh, quite a character. He's quite a romantic. He talks about the dream of coffee. And in his interview, he says that tasting uh, individual origins is very interesting and it's a learning process to taste the different origins but it's rather the equivalent of listening to one violin player or one person playing the cello uh, but then when you bring in all the flavors and all the tenors from different origins and different ways of producing the coffee then you get the full orchestra and then the, the sound and the, the flavor from the full orchestra in a blend is uh, quite extraordinary. So my learning curve has really been individual coffees, individual origins, and now going into trying the various different blends. And you'll very quickly uh, learn to differentiate and appreciate coffee as you appreciate fine wine. Oh, wow. That's, that's a really uh, interesting and nice vision to have for, uh, for coffee. And myself, hope that uh, it's going to take pace. So in this regard, like, in your opinion, what is your view? How can roasters adapt to, this, uh, to these changes, to these new requirements? Because we see that roasters, and uh, there are maybe even different distributors of coffee, whether we're talking about countries such as the United Kingdom, where we maybe have uh, Costa, Cafe Nero, and Starbucks, or uh, in the Italian market, where we don't really have an uptake in this kind of distributors, but we have more smaller coffees. Uh, we have bars where we consume coffee. How do you see these places of consumption change their way to offer coffee in order to get this, uh, this new culture of consuming coffee? Yes. Well, we've talked about coffee being similar to wine, but the industry in a way is very similar to beer. There's been a tremendous consolidation uh, within the sector as the bigger companies have been buying up the smaller companies, exactly the same way as in the beer industry. And what's happened in the beer industry, you've developed a lot of microbreweries, very small breweries that uh, are specialized in different ways of doing it, making beer. And the same thing is happening in coffee. As you get the, the big roasters becoming bigger and bigger, You've got a multitude of these small roasters and small coffee companies and small cafes um, developing, and each with their own style and each way of doing it. Um, and so at the moment, we're in a just, I suppose, a little bit into the beginning of this journey with lots of little roasters opening up and learning the business, etc. And maybe in... 10 or 20 years, they'll all be bought up by the bigger companies. But for the moment, uh, there's a huge excitement and adventure within the sector as these new startups start and they develop different ways of doing it. The trend, for example, now is towards a, a lighter blend. The trend is away from espresso into a filter coffee where you can get more of the clarity and the taste of the coffee. So uh, these are all very exciting trends and very interesting ones. And that continue. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. And uh, 
when I, one thing that happens when I when I read their books, whether it was a, a the new merchants of grain or commodity conversation, is that I I try to understand what the careers of people in the industry uh, look like because uh, you have these uh, interesting structures, interesting way of writing that you write your uh, the chapter where you discuss the different topics, but then you also have the interview when uh, you get to understand. Uh, Yes, the views of the, the host on the one hand, but also their story, their, uh, their career. And uh, in this regard, how do you see a career in the coffee trading business for a, maybe a young person who's joining? What, what does a career in this business look like? Well, I think it would be a lovely industry to join coffee. Out, out of the ones that I've studied and written about, coffee is, is a, a personal favorite of mine. So that's the first thing. Um, I was very lucky. I started with Cargill, which is a very big uh, trading company, and they have a, a tremendous training um, network and system and everything. So you get a, a tremendous training with them. And I would recommend anybody trying to start in a business to go to work if they can um, try really hard to go to work for the bigger companies where they can see how things are, where they can work with real professionals who understand the business and are trained and then can pass on their expertise. So this applies to whether it's oil, whether it's BP or whether it's grain, whether it's continent, not continental, but Bungi or Cargill, um, the metals companies. So I would recommend anybody to try from university to go and work for the bigger company to learn the business for five or ten years and then once you understand how it all works you've built up the contacts and um, you've learned how it, what to do then to join a smaller company it's not always possible uh, Marco but I would always aim high and try hard and now is a good time because uh, the, the, the employment market for young people is very bad, but commodity prices are picking up again. There's talk of an, another boom. So I think the companies are hiring and they're looking for, always looking for young, talented staff. Um, and so go for a big company, go for a big name to start with. Okay, thank you. So this is a very good advice for a for me, for myself, I'm starting now my, my career, but also to all the young people who, who are listening. So that's a, that's a very nice of you. In terms of now of uh, your different publications, so you wrote a book that is about uh, sugar trading, one that is introductory in uh, agricultural commodities, one on grains, and this the latest one on coffee. And uh, my question uh, came naturally, like, are you trying to uh, build a body of work where you explore different commodities, or is this... Uh, um, a, a random choice of commodities, a random choice of topics? It's a little bit of a random walk. Um, because I uh, was in the sugar business for so long, the first book was a brain dump, as you might say, getting everything out of my brain. Uh, the second book was a request from the, um, the NIBOT, as it was, New York Board of Trade, the, the Futures Exchange, who wanted a book to be able to give to young people or give to journalists because they found that most people didn't understand how commodities worked and they were keen to have a, a go easy to read go-to book so that was a request and in fact the 
the book on the grain trading companies is not on the grain. The the book is the out of the shadows. It's more about the big trading companies, and that was a request um, from a grain trader who said who suggested I, I write that um, update a famous book called The Merchant's Grain, written in 1979. So those two were a request, and in fact the third one was also a request, um, a gentleman from Sukhafina, um, Nicolas Tamari, Tamari, who is the owner um, the Tamari family of Sukhafina. Um, they, he'd read the book, and he asked if I'd be willing to write something the equivalent on coffee. And he was president of the... Uh, at that time of the Swiss Coffee Traders Association. So that's how it came about. So they were large, the three were largely requests. So I'm now looking um, for other ideas to write about, um, but for the moment, I'm quite happy just updating my blog on commodity conversations, and I enjoy that. Okay, this, uh, the last sentence was interesting because uh, myself, I was gonna ask you today, uh, because you cover these different commodities and uh, because you have this team of yours when uh, where you, you want to be an ambassador of the commodities trading world you want to raise awareness that uh, commodity trading is not about speculating but is about uh, making a supply chain even more efficient is about moving uh, a good from where it is produced to where there's a demand for it and uh, there's still uh, a lot of discussions and a lot of concerns about uh, oil, about uh, natural gas and minerals. So I was going to ask you if you, if you ever considered writing a book in, uh, in this area or if you will consider in the future if it's, if it's going to be beneficial in your, in, uh, in your view. I, I think it would be very beneficial, but I'm not really an expert. Um, so I prefer to write on the agricultural commodities um, because you can very easily destroy a book by making a few simple errors and by making a few mistakes. And you can therefore discredit the whole body of the work. So I prefer to write about things that I, uh, commodities that I'm more comfortable with. Um, but it's an idea, why not? My, my son, my eldest son is a gasoline trader. Um, so he might be able to help me one, one day, but for the moment he's too busy trading so uh. yeah so i'll be i'll be waiting for that book then i will be i'll be waiting for him and i'm looking forward to okay. and uh, we 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 briefly talked about before about careers in commodity trading so i'm i want to build a little bit on this uh, uh, again on your book uh, you talk about an overlap between uh, the trader role and the merchandiser merchandiser role which is now becoming relevant in the industry so I was, I was going to ask you if, uh, in your opinion, this is applicable also to other commodities. And in this regard, uh, always talking about young graduates, what are maybe the skills in this new role, in this new environment that uh, they need to succeed? Okay. Well, uh, traders or merchants uh, tend not to... Everyone imagines that they're taking big bets on the flat price. The price of oil is going to go up or the price of natural gas is going to go down. But in fact, what they're doing is they're making a number of small bets on the uh, all along the supply chain when prices get out of line. When, for example, uh, for example, wheat in Russia becomes too expensive relative to wheat out mm -hmm. of the US, then they'll take a position 
that way, and it's they trading more the differentials, the differences between different prices all the way around the world, and this helps make markets more efficient. So a trader will try and buy from origin and sell as close to destination as he can. So he's moving commodities all along the supply chain um, at every single moment. And as different prices get out of line, either in geographically, between different origins or just destinations, um, between time, when today's oil is, you can stick it in a tanker and it's worth more in a year's time. So differences in time and differences in, in form. So when you're trading, your, you've got your crude barrel, what do you make? Is it, is it you make more diesel? Do you make more naphtha? Do you make, if you're uh, in, in, in a corn producer, do you make more ethanol? Do you make more high fructose syrup um, or more animal feed? So what the traders are doing is constantly looking to see when prices get out of line in those three spaces, geography, form, and time. So merchandising is moving along the supply chain and trading is making, is ironing out the, the, the distortions in prices along those um, supply chains. So in a way, they're pretty much the same thing, but you wouldn't be able to have anything if you didn't have traders and merchants. Your, the oil would still be sitting in the ground or in a port in the Middle East and not in your car. Your iPhone wouldn't have uh, the batteries in it to, to operate. So nothing works without commodity traders. And commodity traders make sure that the supply chains are robust and they work. And so it's actually a very good industry to be in, and one that's, for reasons unknown, has a bit of a dark reputation. Um, and people always think that, that commodity traders are evil, conspiratorial people who are trying to push prices up for consumers and push them down from, for uh, producers, but that's actually not the case. There are always going to be one or two bad apples in any industry, um, people who are not behaving ethically, um, but it's such a tiny majority. Um, and the, that's why I write these books, because I want to try and show people exactly what the industry does. Well, yeah, definitely. And this is something that uh, comes up also on the Crop to Cup book, because, uh, yes, on the one hand, we can see that there are some sustainability issues on the on, uh, on coffee and uh, on its supply chain, but also there are companies out there that are uh, working with farmers, that are working with producers, and they are trying to really make an impact and change their lives. So if uh, if anyone wants to learn more about this and uh, what companies are doing, there there's really an array of different programs that are described in your book in, uh, in this regard. And uh, what, uh, what I would do now is that uh, I, I just have a few questions on, uh, on your career. And this is because uh, so I talked to a friend of mine and I told him that you were going to be on the podcast and he's a fan of yours and he wanted me to ask a few questions. So I'm just going to ask some of his questions to you. And uh, one of these was uh, about your brokerage business. So you, you, made, you jumped ship in, uh, in the past and uh, you started your own brokerage business. 
So when did you do that at the time? What made you do that, that, that change? Well, to start, when I was with Cargill, um, I was headhunted. Um, this was in the, the mid-80s, early 80s, uh, when a future futures uh, commissions were very high and futures brokers were making a lot of money and I was headhunted by Continental Grain to work for them on their commodity brokerage and so I was sad to leave Cargill but Continental offered me 10 times the salary at that time so it was impossible not to accept. Uh, then as uh, so I went from being a, a trader to being a broker and then as life went, time went on I wanted to be my own boss and it's impossible to be your own boss as a trader uh, well you can be but you need a lot of capital and to be a commodities futures broker you need a lot of capital so I then uh, I was actually asked by one of my clients if I would be able to help them broker some uh, physical cargoes and that's really how I started that was back in uh, 1990 and as I get older and the traders stay the same age because traders tend to be from 25 to 40 and they leave a very fast life with nightclubs and lots of travel and as I got older I was less able to keep up and so we uh, we had incidentally started as part of the brokerage we, we'd send a daily report with all the prices each day and and in the end the tail ended up wagging the dog and the report became worth more than the brokerage and everybody wanted to buy the report so we then uh, started doing more analysis on the market and uh, the analysis and the price reporting became the main main part of the business and we were eventually bought by uh, what is now Standard & Poor's S&P Global who have a price reporting agency in what they call Platts which is um, reports on prices in the oil industry and they were very keen to move into agriculture and because we were already reporting on prices and market analysis in agriculture uh, we were a good fit for them. So that's that's the career. Oh, wow. that's that's impressive and uh, and great to hear this also this side of being an entrepreneur, being your your own boss and uh, succeeding at it. So congratulations! And uh, what I what I'd like to do to conclude the episode is that uh, so we know twenty twenty was a bad year. It was a bad year for for probably everyone. People started working from home, but there's we started twenty twenty one with hope, and uh, I published an episode when. Uh, uh, about this rumor about this uh, new commodity bull market. Uh, there was uh, a lot of talking about it on LinkedIn where a few posts talk about resistances being broken. So whether it is hope or uh, it's uh, more from an analyt analytical perspective, what is your view on this? Do you see any sign that you're actually entering a new commodity bull market and maybe 2021 is going to be a good year? Absolutely. Uh Commodity markets are cyclical. Uh, there was a very, very big bull market in the early 2000s, end of 1990s, 2000s, uh, that was driven by the industrialization of China 
and there'd been bottlenecks all along the way and people weren't producing enough of anything to satisfy the demand from China. So that was a mega bull market. And then we went into a sort of doldrums a little bit in the um, tens and 2010s, in fact, 2015 to 2020. But uh, around about every five, seven years, you get markets do their job the supply goes down prices are low people drop out they don't invest in port facilities they don't invest in processing and or new mines and so now we're in the the early stages of a new bull market i don't think it'll be a a super bull as they call it because that was driven by a very unusual event which was a, the, the the industrialization of China, which was incredibly rapid, incredibly quick, and uh, drove prices higher. Now you've got China restocking grains, uh, their, their pig herd is picking up again. So you're getting uh, good demand coming in. And so this will keep prices steady and rising, but it's probably not a super bull market at the moment. For that to happen, we need uh, some big problems on the supply side, some big weather problems, but we, you keep an eye open for that. Okay, so thank you, thank you for this, and uh, this leads us to the end of the episode. Again, I want to thank you not only for joining us today, but also for the books that you wrote that really are helping many of us uh, get into know the commodities world, start a career, so yeah, for sure we'll be waiting for a new one, and hopefully it will be soon. So again, thank you for joining Commodity Talks. Thank you, Marco. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Commodity Talks was written, edited and produced by myself, Marco Turla. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I invite you to subscribe on Spotify. And remember, follow the Commodity Talks LinkedIn page for constant news and updates.